insights one can glean from history is that you're never done. I mean, there is no end of history. It keeps going. Things will ebb and flow. But the idea that you'll have turned the corner and, and you've achieved perpetual peace is really a pipe dream. I, I mean, you're always there's always going to be new challenges. We just have to have to prepare for that. And deterrence, I think, ought to be a part of the discussion. It certainly uh, has proven a valuable and flexible tool throughout millennia. And we ought to you know, understand it fully and be aware of its limitations and the opportunities that that it offers. Welcome to the Air Force Doctrine Podcast. My name is Nicholas Underwood. In this episode, our panel explores the role of air power in the period leading up to World War II and discusses the role of deterrence in great power competition. Here's our discussion. Our first guest is Dr. Richard Muller. Dr. Muller is a military historian specializing in the history of air power in the Second World War. He is also a professor at the Air Force School of Advanced Air and Space Studies at Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama. Prior to his time at SAS, Dr. Muller spent 14 years on the faculty at the Air Force Air Command and Staff College, where he has served as the course director, department chairman, and dean of education and curriculum. He has also, also authored several books, including The Luftwaffe Over Germany, Defense of the Reich, which he co-authored with Donald L. Caldwell. The deeply researched and insightful work garnered the Air Force Historical Foundation's prize for the best air power history book of 2008. Dr. Moeller has also held fellowship appointments at Yale University and the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. He holds a master's and PhD degree in military history from Ohio State University. Dr. Moeller, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, thanks. I'm really glad to be a part of this discussion. Our second guest is Dr. Dan Bookham Jordan. Dr. Jordan serves as a joint and multinational doctrine specialist at the Air Force LeMay Center for Doctrine Development. At LeMay, he has represented the Air Force in the development of Joint Doctrine Note 122 competing, as well as rewrites on JP-1, JP-3, and JP-360. Prior to his time at LeMay, Dr. Jordan served as the Assistant Professor of Joint Operations at the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College and at the Baltic Defense College in Estonia. In that role, he has taught joint operations and planning in five different countries. While on active duty, then-Colonel Jordan serves as the Command Director for NORAD U.S. Space Command in Cheyenne Mountain and has commanded at the squadron and group level while accumulating 3,100 hours in multiple aircraft, including the F-117, OV-10, and F-16. Dr. Jordan holds a Ph.D. in Modern European History from the University of Cincinnati. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Really happy to be here. Thank you very much for letting me participate in this. Absolutely. So, gentlemen, I'd like to get right into it. I, I think one of the best things to do is just to, to frame our argument. There's a lot of talk about deterrence, this return to great power competition. Deterrence has, has moved to the forefront, and, and air power has had a significant role in that throughout history. But uh, just for our listeners, let's just talk about kind of what is deterrence? What has it been historically? How has this evolved? How do we really think about this today? Well, deterrence, uh, it really, it's, it's as old as warfare. I mean, the the ancient Romans, I believe, used to say, if you want peace, prepare for war. Really, they're talking about deterrence, uh, this idea that you can prevent an adversary from, from doing something. So some actions you take, some, some measures that you prepare for can uh, uh, deter or dissuade a, a potentially hostile power from, uh, from taking action. So now the term really got into, uh, into the vernacular during the, uh, at the dawn of the atomic age when the idea of nuclear deterrence uh, came about. Very rich literature, the classics, things like Bernard Brody's strategy in the missile age, talking about the, uh, the logic of deterrence and escalation. 
It is not a exclusively a nuclear phenomenon, though, even though when you say deterrence very quickly, people default to a discussion of, uh, of nuclear weapons. The, there was a very uh, a profound book a number of years ago, George Quester's Deterrence Before Hiroshima, which was really a study of conventional deterrence in the pre-nuclear air age and arguing that uh, air forces have frequently been used to deter adversaries from uh, taking action. So really the term is uh, is broader than just nuclear issues, although it, it does have a uh, have a rich uh, a legacy of, of discussion in connection with uh, uh, with atomic weapons. And Bookham, so you're on the forefront of the doctrine development now, um, especially with the new doctrine note on, on competing with the historical presence of deterrence. Is this still something that takes center stage in, in our doctrine? It absolutely does. The uh, discussions that I'm involved in on a daily, sometimes hourly basis with with regard to uh, strategic and operational level doctrine, uh, almost, uh, it, I wouldn't say ignores it, but and is very aware of it, but does not focus on nuclear deterrence, uh, as opposed to how can we deter our adversaries, our uh, competitors at the strategic or operational level uh, from uh, doing something. And that that theme is very consistent across uh, all the actions that are going on at the Pentagon right now in terms of developing doctrine, uh, the development of strategic competition as a concept uh, and what that means, and and even more so on a broader scale, the whole concept of the strategic, uh, excuse me, the uh, competition continuum composed of various uh, uh, periods and places where you have cooperation, competition, or even armed conflict. So the answer is uh, the, the issue is, is not dead. It is uh, even more important today than it ever was. Uh, Dr. Muller, I know you've looked at this, especially in the interwar period. Where has air power played a role uh, in the past in, in terms of deterrence? If you look at the history of great power competition in the interwar period with, with the rise of Germany, with the rise of an aggressive uh, uh, Third Reich in the center of Europe, uh, there are there are various episodes, there are various periods where I think uh, deterrence was uh, practiced by by the Germans in an attempt to prevent the allies uh, and associated powers from dealing with, uh, or from, from opposing German designs. Um, what, I really, when Hitler came to power in 1933, Germany was, was disarmed uh, by treaty, and one of Hitler's goals was to rearm Germany and to restore her to her previous position as a great power in the center of Europe. Now, there are any number of reasons why the Allies would want to prevent that, and, and Hitler knew there would be a period of vulnerability as Germany was beginning to rearm that the Allies might, uh, might act and might prevent him from, from reaching his goals. And there were some proposals within the uh, a German military to rapidly build up a bomber force, which was known as the Risk Air Force, and that term was deliberately chosen to mirror the uh, the pre World War One German battleship building program, which was designed to deter uh, the Royal Navy, the greatest naval power uh, on the planet at that time, from from interfering with German designs. And so the theory was that the the Germans would build up very rapidly this air force that would would act as a shield 
as Germany rearmed in the early to mid 1930s in violation of the Treaty of Versailles before uh, formally announcing um, open rearmament. Uh, and, and to an extent, that was what the Germans did. The, uh, the German Air Force was brought into being uh, very rapidly and was used to, uh, to kind of hold off uh, Allied interference in, uh, in German designs. Dr. Jordan, I'd be interested to get your perspective on this. As we look at deterrence in the modern age, uh, how has this idea kind of evolved? I was listening to Rich talk, and it occurred to me that in the interim, in the interwar period, we had these periods where nothing was happening, and yet there was a lot happening behind the scenes. There was an industrial buildup, there was uh, uh, budgets and, uh, and resources being allocated and or uh, directed toward shipbuilding, aircraft building, et cetera. And everybody's pretty familiar with how how uh, extensive that buildup was, not just immediately before the war, but after the war started uh, in World War II. The, the idea of deterrence up to the point that we are uh, talking about today that we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis with great power competition, which is coming out in the national strategy uh, of the United States, is this idea that if I counter a move, then I may prevent the next move. And that is coming through loud and clear in the development of uh, the Joint Doctrine Note on competing, Joint uh, Doctrine Note uh, 1-22. And it also is coming out in JP1 in terms of uh, the strategic doctrine of the United States. If I can counter a move, it does not matter what domain we're talking about, then I might be able to prevent their next move, and, and that could be escalatory. Well, what do we mean by these moves then? We're not talking military and, uh, at, at the level we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about commercial, uh, diplomatic, um, uh, things that are uh, we don't necessarily think of as the use of force uh, operations in the information uh, environment. Uh, those kinds of things are are actually now being considered as tools in the strategic competition uh, as a way of deterring action. Uh, and, and that's why I, I think this contrast between the interwar years that Rich is talking about and, and, the, and, the, and trying to compare it to what's going on today is uh, fascinating. The other thing I would offer too is, uh, I'd be curious about how, what Rich thinks about this, is uh, in, in a world in which our Defense spending is much, much reduced. What I have detected uh, is a tendency to think, well, I have less resources, so how do I best use them? And that comes out in the development of concepts and doctrine. The best example of how that is developing is this idea of uh, global integration. It's the buzzword in the Pentagon and, and, uh, and most of the combat commands right now. How do we globally integrate forces, and I don't mean just military forces, but information forces, cyber forces, those kinds of ideas. How do we integrate all that on a global scale so that I can move in space and time at the decisive point when necessary? And uh, that's, that's an aspect to what's going on today that we didn't have back in the interwar period, the ability of reaching out on a global scale uh, back then, we had to move forces. It would take weeks to move from one theater to another, or months in some cases. Uh, today, we can do it in days, or uh, frankly, we can move uh, 
uh, information moves at the speed of uh, the computer. So uh, that's the kind of uh, aspect I have, or perspective that I have on on this uh, comparison. Yeah, you know, one of the things about the uh, the risk Liftwaffe proposal, and, and and what I'm thinking about specifically is in 1933, it was the uh, the managing director of Lufthansa, a man named Dr. Robert Naus, uh, drafted the memo that was actually called the Risk Air Force for the Air Ministry. And uh, Naus is kind of an interesting guy. He uh, he had a broad academic background. He was trained as an economist. And, and his argument was uh, that air power, although on the technological cutting edge, was relatively cheaper than conventional forms of military power. He actually used what I would call a Billy Mitchell-esque argument that you could uh, build a, a, a considerable force of bombers for a, a fraction of what it took, for example, to build a battle fleet or a large land army. And so this was uh, this was affordable, and this was a way to quickly checkmate uh, the allied powers, their conventional forces, and kind of hold them off until the more uh, extensive German armament plans could uh, 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 take root. And this plan also included a lot of elements that were later associated with containment and deterrence during the Cold War, this idea of the the informational realm. You use a lot of propaganda, the idea of uh, uh, equating uh, high-tech weaponry with uh, with kind of a progressive political ideology. And this was all uh, part and parcel of his proposal. Now, he had recommended that long-range bombers, you know, the four-engine bombers, be the, uh, the essence of this proposal. And frankly, the German aircraft industry was not up to the task of producing large numbers of those aircraft. Also, German military planners knew that, uh, that any war that broke out in Europe would be a... Uh, a joint fight, basically. Germany would have to uh, wage war on its frontiers and that any air force that the Germans developed had to be able to cooperate with the army. So the air force that actually grew up in the Third Reich is composed of uh, uh, of medium bombers, general purpose aircraft that can do limited strategic bombing, but can also do deep interdiction and limited close air support. Uh, so really the air force form followed function in the uh, the Luftwaffe, but this idea that the Air Force could deter as well as defeat adversaries was was pretty well understood in the uh, in the 1930s by uh, by all powers. It's just that you see in this case the Germans did a better job of uh, of linking their air power to their uh, foreign policy during this critical period when they essentially overturned the European balance of power. I, I wanted to pull back on the countering. Uh, argument Bookham brought up uh, a way to deter is, is not a always a singular event. You you continue to counter your your adversary's move, and so how did the the broadcasting of the risk Luftwaffe? Uh, what was the counter there from France and from Britain, and, and and were they attempting to counter his moves? Was this done incorrectly? Is there a lesson there in terms of this point counterpoint uh, in history that could could drive us in the future? Well, there I mean there was an air power arms race in Europe. And you might argue Germany had a uh, first mover advantage in terms of uh, a rapid buildup of an air force. Now, their uh, their propaganda was a two-edged sword, as they they advertised the Luftwaffe as being much more capable than it actually was. In the short term, they uh, 
they managed to cow the, the French and the British into agreeing to or to acquiescing to German advances in places like the Rhineland remilitarization or the uh, the Austrian annexation. And particularly during the uh, Czech crisis, fear of the Luftwaffe was definitely a uh, a driver more for the French than for the British. The, uh, the British were not completely fooled by the German claims that the Luftwaffe was as powerful as they said, but they did they did factor that in. The French clearly thought that they were at a great disadvantage and more inclined to, uh, uh, to appease uh, German demands. But the Allies began uh, building up their forces as well. And in fact, there's still a debate about that last year of peace as to who got the biggest benefit out of it, the Germans who continued to rearm or the British who were able to uh, construct an air defense system and IADs, which would later uh, prove decisive in the Battle of Britain. And and you get this sense throughout the 30s that, that Hitler felt that, that time was not on his side, that the Allies would eventually surpass him, which caused him to move up his timetable for aggression. His original plan was that the war would not break out until uh, 43. And of course, in 39, the Germans invade Poland, uh, realizing that the longer they wait, the uh, the stronger the Allies would get uh, relatives. So yes, the, uh, the, uh, the German buildup did provoke a reaction. Uh, initially, the Germans were more ready to fight the first stages of World War II. They did uh, yeah, yeah, very well in the opening rounds, but were were unable to sustain that uh, uh, for the long pull. As I recall, that um, uh, something that popped up in my head as we were talking about this is the the shaping effect. Though, even though there was a uh, the the bomber threat um, that they, they they pushed for could not really be succeeded or uh, um, accomplished, I should say, uh, from Germany, uh, it did have a, a strong shaping effect on the technological and development decisions of the, the French Air Force, especially their doctrine. As I recall, by uh, May of 1940, when they, they start to invade, a great deal of the French Air Force uh, has been uh, what we call, referred to as penny-packeted, you know, a lot used to to, to guard the cities. And so, in deterrence, um, and it seems to have this other avenue where I, I can not only deter from action, but I can deter to make you taking actions that may not be in your favor. Yeah, the British case is is very interesting. Um, the the RAF's growth uh, after World War One was really shaped in large part by the uh, the influence of Hugh Trenchard, who was uh, chief of air staff for ten years, and you can imagine a chief of staff of the Air Force in the seat for that long can really put his mark on the uh, thinking and, and doctrine of the force. Now, Trenchard was not a believer in fighter defense. He thought fighter defense was ineffective, and he said you needed a little of it to reassure the civilian population. But by and large, he relied on, on an offensive capability to provide the best defense. He said, essentially, um, nations in a future peer air war would, would trade you know, heavy blows from the air, and the nation that could deliver the harder pounding would, would win out in the end. And so the RAF grew up in the interwar period, largely dominated by, by the bomber, and they, and they built up a... Uh, you know, a large bomber force, which ironically did not initially possess all of the associated technologies like navigation and target finding and, and blind flying and all the things that a modern Air Force actually needs. So it wasn't really capable of doing what it was supposed to do. But the idea was that that deterrent 
bomber force would protect Britain from uh, potential continental adversaries. Now, in the last years of peace, there were uh, politicians, there were uh, maverick airmen, there, there were scientists who were unwilling to stake everything on this deterrent idea and pushed for the development of an integrated air defense, even though it to an extent ran counter to RAF doctrine. So the, the air defense mission, which was so important in 1940 during the Battle of Britain, really was sort of an afterthought. It was a, uh, a hedge against, well, what if the bomber deterrent uh, doesn't actually work? Also, it appealed to uh, budget cutters because you could build fighter planes for a fraction of what it costs to build uh, more bombers. And so the RAF had this capability in place. It, although it's worth noting, once the Battle of Britain was won, the RAF, you know, you know, uh, re-rolled itself to uh, to carry out the bomber offensive against Germany, which got more and more effective and more and more destructive as. Uh, as time went on, but for that period, uh, uh, air defense is what is is what kept Britain in the fight, and allowed Churchill to uh, to stay in the war really because he knew that uh, the capabilities existed. Now in France, um, the French Air Force was really uh, dominated by the uh, by the army in terms of its thinking and doctrine. You know, you know that's often, uh, you know, the German Air Force is often accused of being the, uh, the army's uh, handmaiden, if you will. That's not really true. It is much more true of the French Air Force that French uh, methodical battle uh, doctrine was the dominant uh, operational concept where a, a firepower intensive a defensive schema you know, backed up by the Air Force as an auxiliary, and you mentioned uh, penny packing. That was essentially how the French Air Force was used. The French Air Power theory was very robust and and spoke of a balanced force and multi-role air force. But in practice, the French Air Force was really uh, was really quite tied to the army, and uh, and coupled with the fact that they were re-equipping with a new generation of aircraft just as the Germans invaded in May of 1940, they were in a terrible. Position and really not able to uh, to be a major uh, uh, factor in fighting the Germans. That's a that's a really good uh, points. Uh, I didn't know about the uh, the chain of events that went into the development of the RAF in the inter interwar years. I just knew what the effect was at as the Battle of Britain opened. And you're talking about well, their emphasis was on uh, the bomber side. But if I recall in the Battle of Britain, the bomber, the, the RAF bombers had very limited range and were unable to touch, reach out and touch the German air bases uh, in France and in, uh, in the, the lowlands uh, that were, you know, holding their their air force and, and, and therefore putting Britain at risk. Is that correct? That that uh, that deterrent of of a bomber fleet in being isn't just good. It's not good enough to be in being. It must be a a fleet or a capability that has the capability to reach out and touch. Yeah, Bomber Command started the war thinking it would basically carry the war to Germany in daylight. There was a series of what were called the Western Air Plans, which was based on an economic and military analysis of German capabilities. There was one for oil, there was one for aircraft production, there were, there were transportation plans. They were very ambitious and largely undoable with the forces available. Now, the British learned very early in the war 
that daylight raids into occupied Europe were prohibitively expensive. Bomber Command started to launch attacks on the German fleet at its bases in northern Germany in 1939. And in some cases, lost half the force in these raids. The German air defense, which was also backed up by radar, as was the British air defense, just just uh, obliterated these uh, these early British day raids. So very quickly, Bomber Command is sort of thrown into disarray in terms of what it's going to do and how it's going to carry the war to Germany. And now Bomber Command during the Battle of Britain doesn't get a lot of press because the emphasis, of course, is on Fighter Command and the heroic defense of uh, of British airspace. But Bomber Command was active. It did bomb German towns at night, albeit inaccurately. The bombing of Berlin was carried out in response to the German German raids on London. And also the the, uh, Bomber Command attacked the German invasion uh, barges that were massing in the the Channel ports, getting ready to uh, invade the British Isles had the Germans uh, dared to try that. So Bomber Command was trying to stay in the fight. It couldn't attack the the German airfields during the day because the Germans had air superiority over the continent. But there were cases in which Bomber Command hit German bomber bases at night and destroyed uh, German bombers. So Bomber Command's role in the Battle of Britain was, uh, it's considerable, but it is neglected, I think, by historians and, and in the popular narrative. But you're right, Bomber Command could not fight the kind of war it, it intended to fight. The Western airplanes largely remained uh, paper products, and it had to wait the develop, for the development of uh, Pathfinder technology and, and night flying uh, navigational aids to turn Bomber Command into a really viable striking force. And that doesn't really uh, get going until 1942 uh, or thereabouts. All right. So, Dr. Mueller, um, these are all great points. Uh, I, I wanted to shift the conversation a little bit. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of back and forth and deterrence and changing the enemy's calculus uh, between the, the French and the British and the Germany. Is there any, any examples where we could say, yeah, uh, deterrence uh, clearly uh, was a significant uh, uh, factor in victory? Well, there's a number of periods in history where, when you you look back on the uh, on the events, you can reasonably describe it as as a as a deterrent effort. One of the things that's difficult about deterrence is it's very hard to determine that it has in fact worked. You know, say the enemy does not do something, you may think, well, my actions of building up my air power or my air defense or my air offense capability, that's what prevented the adversary from making a certain move. There may have been many other reasons why the adversary chose not to chose not to use force. So it's, it's kind of hard to uh, assert with confidence that, yes, deterrence has worked. You know, if you look at, at the Cold War, most of us would say, well, a deterrence held. We did not have a, a full-out nuclear exchange between the Soviet Union and the United States. Therefore, deterrence worked. That's uh, That argument is full of holes. There may be any number of reasons why uh, war did not uh, break out, deterrence being only, only one of many. Uh, that said, you know, there's a large literature on the, uh, the Luftwaffe's role in the interwar period, uh, and some of it is quite good. This isn't a dominant historical uh, conclusion, but it, but it is one uh, strand of thought that argues that the Luftwaffe accomplished more 
as a deterrent force in peacetime than it ever did on the battlefield. Now, I think that's a hard case to make when you look at the uh, the Polish campaign, the invasion of the West and Scandinavia and the first few months of Barbarossa. Clearly, the battlefield impact of the Luftwaffe was uh, was wide ranging. Uh, but but these uh, these analysts that's, that give the Luftwaffe credit as a peacetime deterrent weapon do have a point. I mean, Adolf Hitler had a a foreign policy agenda which required uh, Germany to uh, expand its power and influence in Central Europe. He was going to achieve his aims initially through what were termed bloodless conquests, the the idea that you could intimidate and gain concessions uh, from from, uh, adversaries without without fighting, or if if a war did break out to keep major powers at arm's length while the Luftwaffe was able to deal with these, uh, the Germans were able to deal with these smaller powers one by one. And there's the sequence of uh, bloodless conquests in the late 1930s. There's the Rhineland remilitarization in March of 36. There's the uh, the union with Austria, which although the Germans build it as Germanic peoples voluntarily coming together, it really was a case of of, of intimidation and coercion, uh, aided by deterrence, keeping uh, the Allied nations out of it. And then and then clearly the Czech crisis of 1938, where. Um, the British and French essentially dealt away Czech independence in order to, uh, to 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 guarantee peace in our time. In each one of those cases, the Luftwaffe was a player. Now, during the Rhineland remilitarization, uh, the German forces had orders: if the Allies did anything, they were to withdraw. And so Hitler knew it was a tremendous gamble. The army leadership thought, well, Hitler's probably overreached himself, but the Germans moved into the demilitarized Rhineland, and the Luftwaffe contributed to that in a small way. They flew a few uh, fighter squadrons into the area, and they flew them from airfield to airfield, and and mechanics would change the markings on the aircraft at each stop to create the impression that there was a much larger uh, force. Whether that was decisive or not is still uh, under debate. Many argue that the Allies just had no appetite for an armed confrontation. Uh, Many British analysts said, well, after all, Hitler's just moved into his own backyard. Uh, This wasn't seen as a major turning point until, in retrospect, this was seen as a step. Now, it's more clear in the case of Austria. The Germans intimidated the Austrian government with threats of the aerial destruction of Vienna uh, by the Luftwaffe. That is very, very clear. The uh, the uh, Austrian chancellor later said, "We yield only to superior force." That he was definitely coerced by the uh, the threat of a, a of a German air raid. And in the case of the of the Czech crisis, and particularly in the case of France, the French uh, military leadership was clearly intimidated by the uh, presumed power of the Luftwaffe. The Germans had displayed their aerial might to the French on many occasions. The French air attaché reported that based on what he had seen, which was in part a Potemkin village or Potemkin airfields of German air power, that the French air force wouldn't last two weeks. So that clearly affected the minds of the French uh, decision makers. Now I mentioned less so the British, the British had a clearer idea of what the Germans were actually capable of. But even, um, uh, there's a famous passage in, uh, in Neville Chamberlain's writings where as he flew back from the conference with Hitler, 
he imagined his plane flying back to London was a German bomber flying up the Thames, and he imagined what what he what peace in our time had spared his people from the possibility of a German bombing raid. So it clearly affected, and really deterrence is a psychological process. The 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 the, the presumed capability of the German air force affected the the minds and decision making of the Allied leaders, and and you do have a case of. Uh, of effective deterrence. And then the Germans are able to do what they wanted to do on the continent without fear that the uh, allied powers would, would interfere with them. What you've illustrated uh, in the, from the point of view of deterrence is the importance of what the leader perceives as will be the reaction. It has nothing to do with the calculus of force on force, force ratios, can I beat him in the air? Can I beat him in cyber or whatever? It has to do with, well, it's only a piece of their their previously owned land, so we'll just give it to them because I don't want to have to deal with it. Or you know, the same issue with, with uh, Czechoslovakia uh, before the war. But, but these things, these issues actually transcend World War II. We have the very famous uh, quote from John F. Kennedy when uh, East Berlin was closed off, and he said, well, they're, they're, they're hemorrhaging Germans to the West, and if I were in charge, I'd probably do the same thing. So he'd let them do that. And the same thing happened in 56 in Hungary. They were, you know, the Hungarians were looking for help, and we just didn't want, we, the West, did not want to uh, incur a war over okay, Hungary or whatever, Czechoslovakia a few years later. So I, I think this whole idea of deterrence in, in terms of uh, how we prevent action is really a game about the strategic thinkers. It's not something that deals directly with uh, the generals or the admirals, except for them following whatever the political will of their leadership is. Yes, there was a, a comment made by the, uh, the, the U.S. ambassador to France at the time of the Munich Agreement. He's reporting back to uh, Franklin Roosevelt. This is Ambassador Bullitt uh, talking. And, and Roosevelt's asking, well, what, what, is, you know, what are the lessons you've taken away from this uh, diplomatic crisis in Europe? And Bullitt replied, uh, Mr. President, the, the takeaway here is that if you have enough airplanes, you don't have to go to Berchtesgaden, you know, cap in hand, you know, begging concessions. You don't have to play that game. And that's as, as clear a statement as, as you can imagine about the effect of, a, of an air force on the political calculus and diplomatic calculus of the European policymakers. Now, in truth, as I said, that was more, that was more true of the French, who was the continental power, had the biggest uh, uh, risk you know, running uh, in this. The British still have a you know, limited liability. They have the channel and all that. But the idea that the uh, perception that the Allies were weak in the face of German air power shaped the way the Munich crisis uh, turned out. And now really, if you look for the roots of appeasement, it's bigger than just air power. I mean, the memory of World War One was strong. I mean, the, the appeasers weren't weren't cowards, they weren't fools, they would not lightly consider another European war without a, a, a damn good reason, and it was not a thing that they would undertake uh, lightly. So there are more causes to appeasement than just German air power, but I think you do have to, have to uh, give value to the fact that German air power gave Hitler some diplomatic options and, and a lever with which to 
achieve his diplomatic goals. Yeah, I love this point. The uh, One of the passages that stood out to me in a, a book I read most recently, that if Hitler knew that he had to go to war with uh, France and Britain and Russia all at the same time, uh, he would have run his calculus differently. Uh, and I'll have to look up and see exactly where the quote comes from. But uh, as Hitler returns back from the Munich Agreement, he turns to his, his, his top generals, I think it's uh, Guderian, and says, and who's cautioning him, hey, we're not ready for war, we're not ready for war. Uh, he tells him to proceed. I've seen them, they are worms. And so this is a direct uh, Hitler translation of, of, of what he feels about the will of his enemies. He doesn't believe that they will actually carry out any of their threats. And so that, that to me, speaks directly to Bookham's point. Uh, one of the things we've stayed with uh, is this interwar period leading up to the war. I wonder, is, is, is once uh, uh, we're at the level of armed conflict, is, is deterrence over? Uh, or is this some, uh, a concept that exists uh, throughout armed conflict? My personal opinion, of course, in this case, but uh, we will always need the ability to do deterrence, whether I'm in a conflict or not. The, the, very, the basic concept of, uh, of the competition continuum, which hit joint doctrine a couple of years ago in, in a very, very large and comprehensive way, is that we are always and always will be in competition in some way, shape, or form, whether we are at the end of a decisive war or the beginning of an irregular war, if you want to use that, or a small war, as the Marines would say during the inter interwar period also, uh, that, that we're always in some state of competition. What is very obvious uh, from my perspective is watching uh, uh, if you will, the forensics on how doctrine is getting developed and seeing where all the all the different agendas are coming together to create something that becomes the joint doctrine of the of the United States. And by by the way, by extension, the doctrine of uh, NATO in many different ways is that ultimately, if I'm always in competition, then the way I shape my operations, military operations, is to always have that sequel that says, okay, yes, I defeated the, the enemy force in the field, but I still have to deal with uh, reconstitution. I have to deal with civil, uh, uh, civil reconstitution in terms of the, the country that I'm in or the land that I'm in and, and be responsible for that until such time as I hand it over. We did that very successfully, I might add, after World War II. The, the reconstruction efforts of Germany and Japan are models of how to do this, and we did that. And then we ended up in the Cold War, deep into the Cold War. And now the only thing that really is keeping us safe is uh, a, a thousand missile fleet of intercontinental ballistic missiles coming out of submarines and out of the earth. Uh, and vice versa from the Soviet Union. That has gone away, yet we still maintain our nuclear arsenal, and we still have uh, the fear that that could happen again. So here we are again. It, it, the cycle continued in the case of the nuclear deterrent. In the case of the of uh, conventional deterrent, I think there was about a 15 or 20 year period, I'd be curious about what Rich thinks, of where we thought, okay, we've reached Pax Americana and, and everything is right with the world. And then everything changed again with 911. What you're seeing today 
just an opinion on my part is a whole lot of people that fought in Iraq and Afghanistan that think, hey, it was a mistake. And the reason it was a mistake is because we didn't think the long game. And now we're going to think the long game by building a competition continuum framework. The disadvantage of this framework is some people will say we never really win, which is the same as saying we never really achieve our strategic objectives, which I have a problem with. So ultimately, there's conflict in, in terms of how the, the, the framework is discussed and how it's shaped. Even now, even though it's in joint doctrine in 3-0, the competition continuum uh, is being uh, hotly debated in the preparation for JP1 rewrite, which is coming in the next couple of weeks. I'm curious, the, the continual role that uh, deterrence plays, it, it seems to play a very dominant role in competition. Uh, to paraphrase uh, another uh, author I don't remember, hopefully you guys will uh, help me out. Uh, the goal of uh, war is a better peace. And that seems to be the goal of deterrence as well. So uh, as you, you run through your cycle and you end up in armed conflict, or maybe you don't, you end up back in a, uh, a state of competition, or we could even call it a stalemate of sorts, where mutual deterrence uh, prevents us from uh, getting into another world war. And so that is ultimately the goal, I believe. Uh, Dr. Mueller? Yeah, that would be Basil Little Hart. Uh, the idea that the uh, purpose of war is to achieve a better state of peace was his uh, his famous uh, uh, comment. You know, um, well, well, I I agree with Bookham that we shouldn't you know just throw up our hands and say, well, we never reach our strategic objectives. The idea that you're never done, though, I think, is worth um, capitalizing on. I mean, if, if history tells us anything. And I think history gives you insights. It doesn't necessarily give you give you lessons, but the insights one can glean from history is that you're never done. I mean, there is no end of history. It keeps going. Things will ebb and flow. But the idea that you'll have turned the corner and, and you've achieved perpetual peace is really a pipe dream. I, I mean, you're always there's always going to be new challenges. We just have to have to prepare for that. And deterrence, I think, ought to be a part of the discussion. It certainly uh, has proven a valuable and flexible tool throughout millennia. And, and we ought to you know, understand it fully and be aware of its limitations and the opportunities that, that it offers. All right, gentlemen, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, what I'd like to do in conclusion here is give you the opportunity to talk directly to our airmen, our, our CGOs, or FGOs, uh, give them a, a takeaway when they sit down and think about their role in deterrence and how they can think about deterrence uh, uh, as informed by the past. All right. Um, I'm a historian, and it would please me greatly if everyone listening to this got all fired up about studying history and became historians themselves. But, but that's not really my point. It, I think what we we can hope for are a kind of historically literate airmen, and by that I mean if you understand what has happened in the past, if you understand why things turned out the way they did, how complex things were, how things sometimes turn on what seem like very insignificant factors, like who is in what job and what weapons are available at a given time in history. You can understand how, how fraught the process is of military decision-making and of doing the right thing to ensure national survival. And I think what studying history, what having an awareness and a comfort with the past can give you is just another tool in your toolkit for understanding just how difficult the process is. And the biggest thing I would ask you to take away from, from studying history is to acquire a sense of humility. We look back today and say, boy, they sure were stupid back then. Why couldn't they see 
these obvious mistakes that they were walking into. Well, 25 years from now, they may look at our age and say, what were they thinking about the crises of today that we think we have we have solved? So little humility going in and understanding that our, our predecessors were not stupid. They were educated professionals making the best determination they could based on what was available. And in some cases, they guessed wrong. We can learn from that, but we shouldn't uh, you know, think ourselves better or superior just because we have that perspective. Thank you. That's fantastic. I, uh, I, I could relate to that very deeply. I, I started by reading um, Strange Defeat by uh, uh, Mark Bloch, and uh, I was pretty hard on the French. And then when Ernest May came out with uh, Strange Victory, uh, I, I took a little bit of that humility and go, okay, yeah, um, uh, maybe I should step back. And so I, I would, I would argue that humility is built by doing more than reading one book. So I uh, head over to you, Bookham. Well, I would like to share with you a, a short vignette. A couple of months ago, I had a field grade officer walk into my office and uh, sat down and he, he wanted to know, he was very straight faced about it. He wanted to know how come his four star could not have the authorities necessary to do what was necessary out there in the strategic competition world. You know, he wanted to be able to shoot and he didn't want to have to ask permission. And of course I said, uh, well, the reason he doesn't have the, he or she does not have that authority is because if the act of shooting means that we're going to end up in a war, then that authority lies with the president. It's the bottom line. And in the area of strategic competition, people are uh, and, and agencies and headquarters are looking for authorities that, hey, they don't have and they're not going to get unless it's vetted all the way up to uh, the Security, National Security Council and the president. So in this world, we're talking about uh, competition, deterrence, the use of military force in strategic competition. It's a very serious game in which the wrong move can cause a war. What we are going through today, in my opinion, is no different than the, str the struggles and the tensions that we went through in the Cold War. I hope we don't get into one, but there are things going on today that uh, would, would make me uh, wave a flag of caution. That's going to do it for this week's Case Studies and Doctrine podcast. Special thanks to our panel members, the LeMay Center and Air University. And as always, the views expressed by our panel members are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Air University, the Air Force, or any government agency. I'm Nicholas Hunwood. We will see you next time.